Thank you, Connie. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, please open them to Ruth chapter 2. If you do not have your Bible, again, all of the scripture references and everything are going to be on your notes for today. And we're going to start with verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the day of your husband has been fully told of me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. May the Lord... Bless the reading of his word. Um, so as you can see, we're continuing on the story of Ruth and now Boaz, who has come into the story as of last two weeks ago now. Um, and this is the first discussion that happens between Ruth and Boaz. And so it's kind of an important one, obviously for their own personal reasons, but also for us to see what kind of dynamic is going to occur between them. Um, And as we see, there's going to be a lot of things that get interwoven in between. So let's continue to verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So Boaz begins the conversation with Ruth. This would be the normal pattern, as it might be considered non-traditional for Ruth, who is lower on the social ladder, to approach Boaz, who is higher on the social ladder. Right away, we also see that Boaz does not leave Ruth to it, so to speak, but instead goes to her to start the conversation, which may at this point be a good implication. Now, Boaz urges her to listen to him. The way Boaz states this is meant to be emphatic, similar to behold in the New Testament. It's meant to show her that what is about to be said is important and that she, and we the readers, should pay close attention to what's being said. We also notice that he calls her my daughter. Um, This was also said by Naomi earlier in chapter 2. The likeliest reason for him calling her this reflects their difference in age. Boaz would probably be nearer in age to Naomi than Ruth, and so we can see some age disparity between Ruth and Boaz. It also shows us that Boaz is going to Ruth in a protective way. Whatever he is about to say is to someone he wants to take care of. So he tells her to not glean in another field, but to remain in the one she is in and keep close to his young women. There are a few things to notice from this. The first is the reason for him wanting her to remain in the field. It was likely for gleaners to go to other fields in order to receive more for their work, whether it was because the harvesters were kinder or the landowners themselves were more welcoming to gleaners or there were less gleaners to get in the way. 
Likewise, if she thought that another field would hold more gleaning potential, then she might as well go to another field. Boaz, however, tells her not to go to another field. Instead, he wants her to remain in his field and wants her to stay close to the young women. The reason for staying close to the young women has two effects. The first is that she would be the first to glean, so she would likely receive the most gleanings before the other gleaners. And second, it would also protect her from any unwanted or bad intentions. So right away, we see Boaz is being kind to Ruth by allowing her to remain in the field and urging her to stay close by. Now we come to verse 9. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz then repeats what he said in the previous verse for the most part. To let your eyes be on the field implies that she is to keep her focus here on this field. Um, This might, might also reflect that she is to follow the reapers where they go. If they go to another field, it would mean that they are continuing in Boaz's field since they are his workers, they're his hired help. In this way, she would not be misled into accidentally going into someone else's property, which is what Boaz doesn't want to happen. It is an interesting question that follows his rephrasing of the first command. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? We aren't sure if this is rhetorical, if he has done this already, or if he is planning to do it and is now informing her of it. Regardless, the term touch in this context means to abuse her. Um, There were some landowners who did not take kindly to gleaners, even though they were supposed to, and would have them physically removed. Or if gleaners became overzealous, um, they would be physically removed as well. In this case, Boaz is commanding the young men not to touch her, abuse her in any way. Um, He then tells her that when she is thirsty, she can go to the vessels the young men have drawn and drink from them. This is important for two reasons. The first is that it would allow Ruth to continue to glean, whereas others might get drowsy or tired. The days were getting hotter, so allowing her to drink would help her cool down from the heat and allow her to keep on working to glean more. It also makes us consider the repercussions. Normally, a slave or foreigner would draw water for the Israelites, Here we see that they are drawing water for her. This reminds us that Boaz is really accepting her despite her heritage. Both he and, as we will see later, God, seem to be accepting Ruth as belonging to the people of God. We then come to verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth then shows a sign of high respect by bowing her head to the ground before him. This is typical even in some cultures today to do for one who is lesser to one who is higher in the social ladder. Ruth recognizes what he has done for her and is now ready to respond to his kindness. So she asks, though, what has she done to find favor in his eyes that he should notice her at all? This is important because it reflects back to the beginning of the chapter, where there we find Ruth going out to the field to follow one in whose eyes she finds favor. Lo and behold, she just so happens to come to the land of one whose eyes she finds favor in. This again reminds us of the providence of the situation. Boaz is meeting the needs of Ruth and subsequently Naomi, and even being 
the answer of a request that was not requested by Ruth, but it was still heard by God. We also see the possible xenophobia that might accompany Ruth. She is from Moab, not the tribes of Israel. She recognizes herself as a foreigner in this land. Though she was married to an Israelite, the truth is that she was still a stranger to their customs and their ways, and yet Boaz has shown her great grace and mercy. Why has he done this? This should be the question on all of our minds at this point. That's why we come to verse 11. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Boaz then responds to her question by reminiscing on all that has already transpired in chapter 1. Boaz has heard all of the commotion of the return of Naomi and Ruth now. So it should not surprise us that he has already heard of Ruth and what she has done on the road from Moab by proclaiming her allegiance to Naomi, to Naomi's God, and to Naomi's people. Because of what she has done, by leaving behind her family, her native land, and her gods, she finds favor in Boaz's eyes. We come to verse 12 now. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We then receive the second half of the response from Boaz. He invokes the name of Yahweh to repay her for what she has done. To repay does have some financial undertones, but ultimately we can see how it fits in what has happened here. Also, we see a further understanding of the theology behind the scenes. Boaz desires that God will repay Ruth um, and her kindness with his own kindness. This is further accentuated by the next line where he says, A full reward be given to you by the Lord. Again, the idea of a reward for her kindness, her hesed, to Naomi is in view. It also causes us to reflect that Boaz has not believed that he himself can be the one to repay the debt. Instead, the debt is so large in his eyes that only God is the one who is able to repay it. This brings us back to the theme of providence. God is the one who needs to work in this situation in order for it to come to fruition, which first came to our attention in chapter 1 with Naomi and her recognition that her situation is beyond human help. He then uses the common name of God as the God of Israel. He recognizes that she did not return to her gods, but that she came to the land of Yahweh and has sought refuge under his wings. This kind of terminology reflects a mother bird covering its young under her wings. God is going to be the one who takes care of Ruth. It is his wings which will protect her. We then come to the final verse, verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Ruth responds by acknowledging that she has indeed found favor in his eyes. It is no longer a question for her why he has found the favor. Instead, she recognizes that Boaz is the one she had been hoping for. She furthers this by calling him my lord, a common title for one who would be, again, higher on the social ladder. She then informs Boaz and the readers why she believes she has found favor in his eyes. The reason is she has been comforted and spoken kindly by Boaz. 
The comfort likely represents the fact that she is a foreigner. Despite being a foreigner, Boaz has basically accepted her as being under the God of Israel and therefore worthy of being a member of the people of the tribe and the people of God. She ends by saying that she is his servant, though recognizing that she is not one of his servants. Um, The way that this is expressed means that she considers herself less than one of his servants in the Hebrew. She recognizes that she is on the absolute bottom of the totem pole. Despite being this far down, Boaz has been gracious, kind, and merciful to her. So it is with this that the conversation ends and Ruth returns to gleaning in the field, or begins, depending on your view. So, the main point. The main point of this section is for us to see the first exchange between Ruth and Boaz. In it, we find much about Boaz, his character in particular. Um, He is very different from any other of the characters we have encountered in the book of Ruth. One who truly lives up to his reputation of being worthy, which we found earlier in the chapter. Now this leads us to our application points. The first is providence. (laughs) I think that we are going to probably hit on this theme for the rest of Ruth. Um, The providence of God has been clearly seen in each step of the story, from the negative aspects with the famine, the death of the males, to the positives, the famine ending, Ruth staying with Naomi, and now Ruth and Boaz meeting. In all of these things, we continue to see this great God of Israel working in the lives of these individuals. So the application, the encouragement, from this revelation of God's work within their lives is meant to bring us to the realization that there are no small coincidences within the story. There is no luck within the book of Ruth thus far. Ruth is in the exact spot she needs to be, as is Boaz. Both are fulfilling roles, but even further, they are being led to be brought together for a specific purpose. This applies more to us than we may realize. Just as there are no small things within the lives of Ruth and Boaz, the truth is there are no small things for us either. God is very active in the lives of those who belong to him. As Boaz said to Ruth earlier, she has taken shelter under his wings. He is her refuge, just as he is our refuge. It would be absolutely meaningless for God to be our refuge if he was not involved in our lives. Um, This is the major difference between Christianity and other religions. In most religions, God is infinite, or their God is infinite. We can look at Hinduism or Islam. The problem with this is that while their God is big enough, he is not personal. Which is the problem we face as individuals with personalities? How is it that we have personality? The answer to this is because God himself is personal. However, It is possible to go far in this direction. If we consider the gods of many of the Europeans in the ancient world or the Middle East, we can think of the Romans and the Greeks. We can think of Jupiter and Zeus. These gods were personal, at times a little too personal. The problem is not that they were personal, but that they were not infinite. They were were like us, only bigger. That won't do either, because if God himself is not infinite and not the absolute, then we gain nothing in regards to knowledge or to truth. So in Christianity, the dilemma is solved because we have a God who is both infinite and personal. In his infiniteness, 
He is completely separate from all else. He is completely holy in regards to this. But we as humans share something with God in our personhood. Though we do not express the same attributes perfectly since we're fallen, there is still something about us that identifies with the personhood of God. What does all this philosophical, theological stuff have to do with God's providence? I know what you're thinking that. Ellen's smiling at me. She's like, goodness, what are you talking about? Well, in this case, almost everything. Because God is a personal God, we can truly know him and take refuge under his wings. He will not leave us alone. And we can know that We can know about him because he reveals himself to us through the scriptures and through his son, Jesus Christ, who came according to the scriptures. Yet God is also infinite, which means that, which reminds us that regardless of what may happen in this life, we can be sure that his will and his way will guide us through. Though the storm may seem oppressive and never ending, we can be sure that God is bigger than the storm. Though the darkness is bleak and truly dark, God is greater than in the darkness. It is because God is God that his providence rings true. It is because he is infinite and personal that we can experience his providence within our lives and therefore give him glory for his providence when it occurs. It is because God is who he is that we can see him moving in the lives of these individuals here in Ruth and how we can see him moving in our own lives as well. As we continue through the book of Ruth, let's not forget the God who is making himself known. His providence reminds us of what he has revealed to us about himself. He is personal. He shows us hesed and cares for us. He is infinite. He is greater and beyond all else. So we can be encouraged that whatever or wherever we may go or whatever may happen, if we belong to God, we can rest under the shelter of his wings. Now, the second point is fulfilling providence. (laughs) With all that was said about providence, we should recognize that there is an element of fulfillment by Boaz within this theme. We notice that Ruth desired to go to a field and follow one in whose sight she found favor. Later in the discussion with Boaz, she recognizes that it is Boaz himself in whose eyes she's found favor. In all of this, we can see the important reality of humans being partakers of divine providence. What does this mean? It reflects that Boaz is, by being a devout follower of Yahweh, by being a man of great merit and worth, being used by God to fulfill God's providence. God is taking this man Boaz and this woman Ruth, bringing them together for his glory and for their benefit, and he is using them personally to do this. Boaz showed, some of, um, Boaz showed some of personhood when he goes to the field. He wished God to be with the reapers, for example. Later, he recognized that the only one who can fulfill the debt owed to Ruth um, for her decisions and for her hesed concerning Naomi is God himself. God will have to do something. And yet, even in uttering this statement, we can see that God is already doing something within the story with Boaz and with Ruth. Yet Boaz does not credit it to himself. He does not believe that he is able to repay the debt owed. God is going to have to show that this is right. Boaz cannot repay the debt himself, but he can be used by God to repay the debt. 
God will use Boaz to show his own divine hesed to Ruth and to Naomi, as we will find later in the story. So this reminds us that you and I are in a unique, quite, or in quite the position, a unique position. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are members of the great story of history. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have been brought under his wings. We have been bought. We have been in debt and now find ourselves completely out of debt. Now in Christ, we are able to do something extraordinary. And that is to show this hesed, this divine love to others. We can do this for each other within the congregation as well as to the world around us. Just as God is using Boaz for his good purposes, so we are used by God when we proclaim the gospel and care for each other according to the scriptures. We are able to partake of the glory of God by being actively involved with glorifying God in our lives through how we live. This is something which could never have been done except by the power of the Holy Spirit within us and through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we are able to live a life which is pleasing to God's sight. We are partakers of the glory which is reserved for the Trinity because we are in Christ. It is not our glory, but the glory of God himself. That should not cause you to swell up in human or selfish pride, but joy. Joy in knowing that you, you can glorify God by the way you live and the way you handle your affairs and the way you speak to others, your spouses or your children, and the way you walk in this world if you walk according to the Spirit. We are able to fulfill the providence and be used by God for his glory in this world. And to such a thing we should rejoice greatly that we are not slaves, we're not robots, but that we are used with our own personalities, our own personhood, to glorify God in this life in these ways. So as it turns out, all the times you might have thought that you were worthless or nothing or zero, you can't glorify God. Well, guess what? You're not, and you can. Not by your own doings, just as Boaz recognizes his own inability. So we do as well. But we can know that the story doesn't end with Boaz's own inability. It ends with the will of God being seen within the lives of individuals. So take time to grasp all of this. Take time to consider what it means for you to be able to not be only a witness, not just a refugee, but a participant of the truth of the gospel. That God created you as an individual for a purpose to be here corporately to proclaim the gospel to each other, to proclaim the gospel to the world around you. That though God is the one who brings this restoration within us, he still uses us to proclaim. Be encouraged by this to keep going and to remember that God is doing something miraculous. And he is going to use you and I in order to bring about his accomplishments and his will in the world. Now this leads us to our third point, which is retributive theology. I know, a big annoying term, but we'll get to it. Within the text, we have experienced what scholars call retributive theology. Basically, this means that when you do X then why will happen? So if let's say you murder someone, then the consequences of murdering someone will happen. Or let's say you show someone hesed, then you will receive hesed in return. Some might call this karma, but the truth is it is different from karma. 
The understanding of karma is that when one does something, there will be repercussions. We generally apply this to bad things in particular. Um, let's say you steal something, and then someone steals from you. Um, most would call this kind of an action karma against you. Though in mo more religious settings, it also involves the repercussions for incarnation. But generally, in a more secular way, it is more understood in the context, if you do something, then that something more likely happened to you. Um, retributive theology, however, is different in that it is not some infinite force that determines these things blindly. It is not the universe. Instead, it is God who is the absolute in all morality, who repays both evil and good according to nothing but himself. Karma, again, tends to be blind, but God is not blind. He sees all and knows all and does justice according to himself. Likewise, with God there is morality. There is a right and a wrong, whereas with karma there is no basis for right and wrong because both are absolutely necessary. So, it is with this that we see this kind of retributive theology within the text. Boaz prays that Ruth would receive what she has been given. In other words, because she has done X, let Y happen to her. In this case, it is good. She has done good to Naomi by staying with her, and so Boaz prays that good will be done in response. Notice, however, that this good can only come from God himself, as we saw previously. Generally speaking, this hits on much of the previous points already discussed concerning God's providence, as I said. But now the emphasis is on his justice. He will bring evil to judgment. That is the reality of who God is. He would not be a just God if he did not do this. But as it is, he is a just God, and evil will be repaid according to God himself, who is the absolute in holiness, righteousness, and morality. So what does this mean for us? It reminds us of the gospel when we find retributive theology being played out in a fascinating way. When God saves us from our sins through the death of his son Jesus Christ, he does not simply forget our sins or wave a magic wand and have them disappear. Instead, someone pays the penalty of the sin, and that is Jesus Christ. Some may find it hard to see retributive theology in this side of the cross, but the truth is retributive theology itself is found in Christ and when he has come and died for our sins. Does this mean that God will repay us for our deeds now? Well, he may do that. It reminds me of a story of one of my seminary teachers told. Um, while he was a pastor, he encountered an individual who was seeking, so he decided that he would meet with this individual. They had discussions about God and following him and all that. Then after one meeting, the man says, do you really believe all this stuff about God? My professor said yes. Anyway, the man eventually ended up taking a decent sum of money from my professor. As memory serves, it's been a while since I was in school, so pardon um, as memory serves, the man stole it from him. I recall there being a gun involved, but he could have simply given the man the money as well, so I don't remember either way. But the point is, in either case, the point of what happened next. He went home, he told his wife the news that the account had been drained, and then they were both kind of shocked over the whole situation. Shortly thereafter... Not having told anyone what had happened, they received a check for the exact amount taken from them. It was from one of the members of their congregation who felt God calling them to give said amount. Some would argue that this is a case for God repaying good for good. 
Ultimately, all we can be sure of is that there is definitely a great amount of grace involved. God was gracious by giving a repayment for what had occurred. God had moved. He used individuals to show his glory. Ultimately, one would argue that all acts of God, when given good for good, are gracious acts. God essentially owes us nothing. Even if we give all we have to him, we would still owe him. Yet God does not make us give without filling us up with something, and that something is himself. The greatest gift we could receive, we have been given, and that is life from death, light from darkness. Though we, there, there are times when he does give us gifts of grace in this life, as we are all aware of and have experienced at some point or another. So as we consider all this, just know that God is watching and he is aware. He is not in heaven, not involved. He is involved. And though there are things that occur to us which seem unfair, God does not forget, nor will he allow it to remain this way forever, either giving to us in this life or the next. God is a just God, and his justice will shine forth forever, both for the good and to the wicked. Now, All of this reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the gospel, we would be lost in our sin and worthy of all condemnation. Yet Jesus has done what he he longed to do for Jerusalem. He has taken us under his wings, and we we will never find greater security than with him. This gospel begins with our origins. He is the creator and all else is created. Of everything he created, he made humans to be in his image. Because God is a God of love, reason, has personhood, he knows, can be known, and shows hesed, we can as well. It is through this that we find both dignity and sanctity to all human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. Originally, we could choose obedience in life or disobedience in death, sin and death. We chose the latter and have continued to make that choice ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. We accrue a greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true moral guilt where we are guilty before our God. God did not leave us in this state forever. Instead, he revealed himself to us by his light and his word, which is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and was raised in time, space, history, and flesh. It is because of Jesus Christ we are healed from our wounds. It is through him we are redeemed from our sins. The judgment we once deserved is no longer on our shoulders, and we are made right with our God through the propitiation of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to change the direction of our lives. We are not to live whatever way we desire, but according to Jesus Christ and the scriptures which reveal to us who Jesus is and the will of God for us, walking in step with the Spirit of God. The second is faith in Christ. We are to recognize that it is not our deeds which save us from judgment, not our works which make us righteous, but the work of Jesus Christ on the cross which saves us from our sin, saves us from judgment, and makes us righteous before God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, we are saved. For those who are disobedient in these things, there is judgment. 
There is no righteousness apart from Christ. There is no hope of salvation either. Instead, any who remain disobedient will find only wrath um, from God. For those who are obedient, there is unending peace with our God. We find we are victorious over our sin through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We are more than conquerors in Christ. We are co-heirs of an eternal kingdom where we will remain with our God forever in his steadfast love. My encouragement to you is to see the great grace of God through what we have seen in the book of Ruth thus far. Be encouraged to remain under the wings of our God, standing firm in the faith which brings us to this place where we recognize our great need, knowing that it cannot come from ourselves or each other, but from God alone. Be encouraged as well to live your life for God, knowing that through Though you and I, through you and I, God works mysteriously in the world. And in this way, rejoice knowing that God uses us to bring glory to himself. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy. And we thank you for the book of Ruth, which keeps on informing us and reminding us that you are a God who is personally involved in our lives that we can know you and that you know us. And this is wonderful. This is encouraging because it reminds us of who you are in your infiniteness and in your personality. And so, Lord, we ask that you continue to show us yourself, continue to guide us as we continue to seek to glorify you. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, number 505.